everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing, and most of the time those writers have been recommended to me by people who have previously been on the show. In the case of this month's author, Dave Fitzgerald, he was recommended to me by Charlene Elsby. So if you like this episode, make sure you go back and listen to that one, vice versa. If you liked that one, stick around for this one. Dave Fitzgerald is a writer living and working in the dank and balmy South. He has previously written for Flagpole Magazine and the now defunct film website Cinespec, and currently contributes to Heavy Feather Review, Daily Grindhouse, and Cinedump. He tweets at D. Fitzgeraldo, and the novel we are talking about today, Troll, is his first novel, and that's out from Whiskey Tit. Before we get into that, let me tell you how you can help the show. You can do so by signing up for my Patreon, patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. For just two bucks a month, you can get these episodes a couple days earlier than everybody else. You can throw a one-time donation to me over at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or you can buy my book. It's called Tired. Just search for it on Amazon. Also, make sure that if you like the show to tell people about it by tweeting or blue skying or mastodonning or whatever. If you listen on a podcast website or app that allows you to rate the show, make sure you do so. The more stars, the better. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Dave Fitzgerald. So let's start with a little chat about second person. I... I'm a big fan of second person, and I remember back in, like, elementary school when we were talking about, what is it, narrative distance, um, like, first person is I, third person is outside of the narrators, outside of the protagonist, um, and I was like, well, what is second person? And the teachers were like, oh, gave me kind of a, a wonky answer and said, well, people don't really do it. Um, and that kind of like planted the seed in me for, as I learned more about literature, um, I think the first second person thing I ever read was Yannick Murphy's This is the Water, uh, which I, I thought utilized it really well and, um, had sort of a disagreement with a college professor at one point about like, uh, the utility of second person. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was like... Um, and I'll still make this argument that that second person brings the reader into the narrative. It pulls you in. Um, I think in the case of like this book, it makes you complicit. Uh, and I, I really like that tool to like um, present uh, a narrator for whom you don't necessarily want to identify with uh, and then say, nope, it's actually you. You are the person. Um and and the professor said it was more like it's the the narrator talking to themselves, um, mm -hmm. which I think I you know as I've gotten less um, as I've gotten away from my twenties and and have been more open to new ideas, um, I find that I, I I think that is a useful way to look at it too and a, a good enough way to write second person and I think that in the case of troll can also be the case. I was talking to my wife about it, and I was like, the character is so self-centered that second person works better than first person because, um, like, there's no, there's nobody he would rather tell his story to. <laughs> He's the only audience that's good enough for himself. Um, but I also, yeah. um, but the whole complicit nature of second person, I think, is, like, my go-to interpretation. So, 
why did you decide to write troll in second person and uh and and uh um and and what do you think about the the form in general uh well you know that answer has gotten a lot bigger since i first started writing the book five years ago or however long it's been now um i think the first like real second person novel i ever read and the one that i think most people are most familiar with is bright lights big city from jay mcinerney and um you know that guy is you know on coke pretty much the entire novel mm -hmm. and you're you're kind of complicit in his bad behavior and um i, I found that really like you said kind of uh you're complicit and it's, it's very immersive and you're it almost turns the book into kind of a ride, you know, like you're, you're with it and you're in it and it's, it's about you. And there's also like, you know, I mean, you could take it back to childhood and, and choose your own adventure books too are, are very much like that. And, you know, you, you don't really get taught those or to think about them literarily, but it, the seed of the idea is there. And then, um, one other thing that that stuck with me for a really long time that I came across completely randomly. Uh, I bought this book in a used bookstore in college called Dear Dead Person by a guy named Benjamin Weissman. And um, the very first story in that book uh, is written in the second person. And it's you're inside the, the mind of a very, very like depressed, unhappy workaday guy who's who's on his way home from work and he's just miserable and everything he's thinking about everything he's looking forward to is this like fancy cookie in a bag waiting for him on his uh his counter at home hmm. and you know no matter like you know he's borderline suicidal but if he can make it to this cookie every day he's okay and then he gets home and his dog has eaten the cookie mm. and it just like destroys him. <laughs> and uh you know somewhere between those two or, or three things, uh, it, it kind of emerged as a, I don't know, I, I feel like it, it both draws the reader in and it, it distanced me from the character in a lot of ways. Like mm -hmm. I wanted, I wanted to create this very hermetic, very uh, isolated, alienated space where you're, you're stuck inside his mind with him and yeah, like he thinks a lot of himself, but he's also really miserable. And, um, you know, he's alone most of the time. He's online a lot. He's very much like an observer of his own life in a lot of ways. And um, like the self-involvement that comes with being alone and high and online all the time you know, puts you in that space. And then something that another uh, a writer friend of mine, Tom Kendall, pointed out that I kind of, it blew my mind when he said this, because I couldn't believe I'd never thought of it before. But uh, he and I, after he read the book, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, our both of ours uh, time smoking way too much weed, which is something that the narrator does. Mm -hmm. And um, how you kind of dissociate from yourself after a while and you know you like i said you become an observer of your own life more than a driver of it 
uh, or a participant in it. And he thought that that worked really well in that way too, as kind of, this is how he would think about himself in the second person because you know, he's high all the time <laughs> right yeah and yet pulled away from your body um yeah I, I i think the the marijuana stuff is interesting i another thing i i mentioned to my wife is that um i've been i've been away from alcohol for like five years now mm-hmm. um and still find that whenever i read about it or see it on on screen um i i get like the knee-jerk reaction of like oh yeah <laughs> let's get back to that um yeah. until i think for more than a couple seconds and i'm like oh wait no that's actually a terrible idea and in fact it feels <laughs> it feels worse more than it feels um better yeah um and I, I think I get that with like any substance uh, portrayal in media. So I was getting that um, with weed too, um, but still got that twinge of like, oh yeah, you know, there's a dispensary right down the street. Yeah, I get a pre-roll, whatever. Um, and then, you know, one of the utilities of the book being so long is that by the end of it, I'm like, ah, that's right. Nope. I like being sober. <laughs> I, I like being complete even if it's exhausting right even if i have to live inside my my brain uncensored all the time still better than than uh than that um so that was a fun uh fun aspect of how long the book was which um i think that's another thing i wanted to bring up as i was reading the acknowledgments and you said the first draft of the book was like twice as long yeah um I find that really fascinating because I have a a hard time a lot of times um, writing maximally. Um, like longtime listeners of the show will remember that like in the first year of the show, I was making allusions to this novel I was writing that I was like, aiming to be like half a million words long and it was going to be multi-layered and stuff and just like i can't think of that many things i got too many ideas i got a like fifty thousand words is like the perfect book length for me um and even that gets a little um tiresome sometimes um so from the outside looking in i i ask this in a in a uh in a way from admiration like how 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 did you do that oh goodness i mean i i i don't say that proudly like the you know the, i went through a couple of other uh kind of false starts with other presses uh before i got picked up with whiskey tit and the first press that showed interest was like this is great but you basically need to cut it in half mm-hmm. and they did me uh an unbelievable favor asking me to do that. It absolutely needed to be cut down. (laughs) Um, You know, I think a lot of it just comes down to being my first novel and a novel that I'd kind of been thinking about and taking little notes for over the course of probably close to 10 years. And once I finally started writing it, it very much became a way for me to stop smoking weed. You know, I, hmm. 
I found that I couldn't really write while I was smoking. I, I had to start choosing. And, you know, it would be a week at a time and then two weeks at a time. And then, you know, the book became more important than the smoking. And uh, I'm really grateful for that. But, um, yeah, I like, I, you know, they say that when you when you write your first book, you you got you have everything to say, like how your whole life is fodder. And then when you write your second book, it's mostly just what's happened since the first book. <laughs> mm. So, um, yeah, like there was way, way, way too much in it, way too much of me in it. Like the book is not really about me in any meaningful way, but there's definitely like, you know, we all take from our lives, you know, the weed stuff is very personal. I, I do love jazz and art films and hip hop and, you know, the, but uh, that, that kind of comes back to the, the second person thing too. I feel like there's maybe something almost self-preservational about that where I'm writing this kind of horrible version of myself that doesn't necessarily exist, but that, you know, I could imagine and that is coming out of my head. And at the very least, I don't have to write him as I, mm -hmm. I can write as you and he's not me <laughs> yeah i like that I, I like the idea that part of writing is like emptying out the unwanted parts of yourself yeah definitely um i've talked before here and there about like method writing um and how I worry that the people who write the autofiction books that I like so much are like not taking care of themselves. <laughs> um, yes. Like, um, and not taking care of themselves in service of writing the next book, right? Like, um, that's, that's something I very much like don't want people to do. Um, and uh, so I'm glad to hear that your <laughs> past. Um, past being this guy um or even you know the parts of you that are this guy um i think that um when when you were recommended to me by um charlene elsby yeah um a lot of what we talked about in our interview was her book psychros and the sort of trouble difficulty i had wanting to push back against her narrator um who was sort of twisting feminist language to justify for herself the bad thing she was doing um I just that yesterday oh yeah and and she she recommended you to me because of similarly the the unlikable narrator within troll Mm -hmm. um who i had a much different reaction to because um kind of like what i talk about with with your auto fiction writers that i had just alluded to like i can see myself having made like two or three different mistakes at some point in my late teens and have and 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 ending up like this guy or being on a similar path where like 
in, instead of watching Czechoslovakian movies because I like seeing what other cultures do with art, I'm watching it so that I can be the guy who has watched it. Um, <laughs> and I mean, indeed, sometimes there are movies I'll 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 watch or music I'll listen to or books I'll read because I feel like I should. Right. Um, I'll say, man, I'm really into art films and everyone's saying I need to watch Harmony Corinne. So I'm just going to watch Gummo. Um, and it doesn't matter if I enjoy it or not. I just like need to take off the box. Um, and I think that's something a lot of people feel. Yeah. Um, with so much available to us. Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah, going I, down the list. And I feel like that's what a, a lot of um, this guy's problem is, at least with regard to how he treats media, mm -hmm. is like, how are you watching all these movies and not learning anything? <laughs> like, how? how? How have you not figured out... Because he'll even be talking to somebody and he'll be like, oh yeah, this French director says so much about our society. And like yeah what does he say and how does that compare to how you are living your life um <laughs> and there's no uh there's no self-reflection i kept being bewildered with this guy that like how do you spend so much time thinking about yourself and and also be unable to reflect on yourself like, how does that happen? Um, and then obviously, I was 16 once, and I'm sure I was very much just like this guy. Spent too much time on 4chan and and have your brain rotted a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think the use of, of media in, in this book is really interesting. And, and um, I'm, I'm curious to know, like... Um, what with all the references in there and and the 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 uh friends essay near the end kind of like what your um relationship to to visual pop culture is uh i mean i i hope i'm a little a little more uh, reflective about it than the character is, uh, you know. I I have a, a I love film and television. I watch a lot of stuff, not as much as I used to, but um, you know that definitely that high and low culture dichotomy within him uh, is something that I enjoy. Um, Um, can you be a little more specific? Let's see. Can I? Um, and I think I think I'm trying to kind of explore media as just another addiction with mm -hmm. him, like that kind of need to see everything and be able to speak to everything, whether or not you necessarily understand it or absorb it. And what we were saying just a second ago, just like ticking the boxes. Mm -hmm. He always he always wants to be the smartest guy in the room. He always wants to 
like be seen as knowing the most even if he doesn't necessarily right yeah i i think there's that i mean you can see it pretty early on that he he kind of catalogs i have this many movies and i've watched all of them and this many books Mm -hmm. and i've read this many of them um and then just spends eight hours watching friends (laughs) um which is something that you hear people talk about today is like you know i'll spend half an hour scrolling through all the things i could watch on criterion mm mm-hmm and then just watch an episode of Friends because it's comforting and I can't make a decision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also think there's like a whole subsection of a generation, maybe my generation, that kind of, you know, the last generation to grow up not entirely online. Right. That kind of defined themselves through cultural capital, through like knowing about this stuff and being able to speak about it and quote it and then suddenly it was available to everyone and what they had accumulated didn't have the value that it used to and they you know they don't really know what to do with it anymore you know like the the idea of completism Mm -hmm. that that is pretty much impossible now because you would just go insane trying but you know i some people do (laughs) i know people like that who just are continuing to try to keep up with everything and it's it's not like physically or or psychologically possible yeah it's such a a strange thought um to to go from like the kid in high school who thought a racer head was really cool to then being on Twitter a decade later and people are talking about some French director uh, who's just like no idea right no and is doing like weirder stuff and um, there's that interaction in the video store where he's talking to like the millennial Gen, Gen Zer 20 year old who's just like oh yeah what about surrealist films and names like <laughs> You know, the second guy you know after Breton, if you know about surrealism as a, as an art movement. Um, uh, and, like, I, I think it's funny and want to scoff at that guy, but it's like, I haven't seen any Bruno L films either. <laughs> um, um, I've, I particularly found that interaction really hilarious um, because he's, the narrator's, like, swinging his dick around and he's like you wouldn't have half the films in here that you do if it wasn't for me and the guy's like oh that's right everyone here hates you (laughs) like nobody's impressed no nobody's impressed that you made us get these region two greenaway dvds um that was a fun scene to write (laughs) i bet it felt it felt like it would be fun um i think one of the strengths of this book is the dialogue um thank you i you're welcome i i have a hard time (laughs) writing dialogue and especially like speeches Mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of good speeches uh in in this book and um it it feels good to kind of see the the discussions that play out online happen in prose 
where I don't have to click through a Twitter thread and like, um, his date with L is, is really satisfying where you can tell he's got strong feelings about something. And then you have somebody sitting there across from him saying like, okay, well tell me more. Right. Mm -hmm. That, that same thing that I just said about like, so-and-so director has so much to say about our society. It's like, cool. Yeah. What does he have to say about it? Um, I think about that, that moment, the first time they meet where she asks him what his, his screenplay is about. And he's like, well, it's kind of like Tarantino, but it's got a little Ryan Murphy thrown in, but not in a serious way. And she's like, okay, but what's it about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he doesn't really have an answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a meme I saw today uh, where it was like a, a person running away from two people in a golf cart. And the person running was labeled writer. And then the golf cart people were, what's your book about? And then the other person was named two, three comp titles. Um, and I think that there's something there about like you're, you're writing to sell something rather than writing something and then figuring out how to sell it afterward. Yeah. Um, also that screenplay, I'm so glad stayed in the book because it was hilarious. Um, I want, I want to see that. (laughs) I, I want to watch that movie because, uh, it's like, uh, there's, there's the distinction of camp, right? Where it's like somebody's trying really hard, but failing. And that's a good campy movie. And somebody trying to make a bad movie and succeeding is not campy. And it's just a bad movie. Um, and you nailed it, man. You nailed like actual <laughs> camp. Like I believe that this person thought this movie was good. And I believe that he write it, wrote it and did his best. Um, and I laughed out loud, um, reading it aloud. Uh, I would love to see it too. <laughs> <laughs> Knock on wood. Um, I enjoy, and I think that's been kind of, kind of where the length comes from is you do these um diversions uh like the friends essay or the screenplay um or even just kind of him planning out other essays his tarantino essay and stuff like that that i kind of enjoy and, and also feels kind of weedy right like you get into that like head loop thing where you're just like going down um a road and before long you kind of forget what's going on but you have a vocabulary set up like you have a little bit of context still and so you're just kind of like running the wheels until you feel like you're there um and then at the end of it it's like wait a minute what did what did i even talk about what is what is even going on um and yeah i i I thought that that was good too because some of those diversions you can see that he is at least talented in the fundamentals of like media criticism um like you can tell that he actually like did retain some of the information from the books he's read and the movies he's watched um and then just like doesn't synthesize it effectively yeah um and as a reader, it's so fun to be so frustrated. It's like, oh, just 
just do a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's also analytical. It's like he he's always trying to say the right thing instead of, you know, what he actually thinks. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um but okay, cool. I'm glad you said that because that's was something I was trying to work out in my brain like what's what is happening with this character where he's um he's he's not like unaware of how people act mm-hmm. um he's just only taken in bad information about what to do about it <laughs> I um, like, that. <laughs> like his his three-day rule Oh, oh yeah. he, he has a good conversation with a woman who gives him her phone number and he's like, well, I saw in How I Met Your Mother that you're supposed to wait three days. So I'm going to wait three days. <laughs> like, no, she wants you to talk to her more. Just go talk to her more. Um, the, the amount of opportunities that you have given this character for him to bungle every single one of them um, is just outstanding. Um <laughs> I, I thought the character Claire was really interesting too because she kind of seemed like the female answer to him. Yes, where... thank you. Okay, cool. So talk about Claire a little bit. Well, I mean, I, you know, the three women are, you know, very important to the story. Uh, you know, it's a little bit of a, a Goldilocks setup. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, one's you know a little too innocent. Mm-hmm. The other ones you know, maybe what he thinks he wants, but he can't really handle it. And then he finds L who's, you know, just right, perhaps. And, you know, he absolutely shoots himself in the foot. But um, yeah, Claire, Claire, I think is definitely kind of the, the female match. Uh, you know, she's very cynical. Uh, she's, uh, absolutely as uh like media savvy and smart as he is probably smarter than he is <laughs> and um you know a lot of what she says to him uh during their time together you know it is you know maybe what he imagines that he wants when he's sitting at home watching porn thinking like you know he's this this big swinging dick or whatever and then <laughs> And then, uh, you know, and without giving too much away, you know, it, it turns out to be very much the opposite. Like, he, he can't deal mm-hmm. with the, the realities of his fantasies. Um, no, uh, the Claire chapter has, has come to be my favorite chapter in the book. Uh, the only reason I don't do it at readings is because I don't want to give too much away mm. <laughs> up front. But... <laughs> Uh, yeah, she was she was a blast to write, and um, both her and L, I feel like are are kind of the the heroes of the book a little bit. <laughs> I think so too. I I think that um, yeah, L is an interesting character because she's such a normal person, um, but you know has that interest in more esoteric media. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because like she saw it one time and thought it was good, 
um her her reaction when he's like oh yeah i watched like every single one of that director's films um between then and now mm-hmm. and it's like oh okay <laughs> like like got this like perfect read on what's happening there um especially after his terrible disney take um <laughs> it's like okay yep nope you just watched those movies to impress me um you are not that excited about film uh so it's time to text my friend and tell her to call me yeah he he throws up a lot of red flags <laughs> over the course of that evening yeah i would be really impressed if 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 somebody came to me and actually had a good case for like uh the classic animated disney films uh, are harmful to the boys who watch them and had like a good thought behind it right because there's like something you could say there about like disposability or how like men even though they have anonym or agency are like ultimately anonymous to uh like the grand narrative creators and are just utility um or something right and said he was just like no but like women are actually hard work to (laughs) to make happy (laughs) tv told me all i had to do is you know show up uh and it turns out that you actually have to have a personality video games too (laughs) Mm. indeed um so uh the the term transgression kind of popped up while I in in my brain while I was reading it. There's, I think, um, in in this writer's ecosystem that that we're in, um, you kind of come across these people who seem to want to say that like I'm writing transgressive fiction as a means of just figuring out like the most gruesome thing they can write and then writing it Mm -hmm. um but i felt like troll was like kind of a uh, something you could describe as like a transgressive novel like a a good modern transgressive novel and I'm, i'm curious if you have like any thoughts about transgressive literature or um contemporary transgressive literature or anything like that uh yeah i mean i think you know, I think there's a, a place for the the hyper gory stuff. Uh, I mean, even Charlene's most recent book has some some pretty horrific stuff in it that I think is really powerful. Yeah. Um. But no, I I you know, I came to it kind of differently. Uh, I I grew up in a a really conservative home and uh, kind of everything a lot of what i wanted to read and watch and listen to growing up was was always kind of a fight or a secret Mm -hmm. and you know and you know that could be anything from uh say nabokov like i read lolita in secret (laughs) or or a clockwork orange you know you know legitimate classics right and then something like uh like uh eve insler or um Glorious Steinem, uh, outrageous acts and everyday rebellions. Uh, I read in secret because you know, feminism uh, went against 
kind of my my religious upbringing in the same way that you know ultra violent films might have right so but, but there was always this kind of sense that important information was being kept from me and anything that was taboo was inherently important mm. and that you know, that I had to to kind of seek that out if I wanted to be, you know, quote unquote smart or whatever. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, the, the older I got and the further from home I got and the less I had to worry about anybody keeping tabs on that, you know, the more that just like continued to flourish. Um, I didn't really get into to the horror stuff until like well after college and it's still not my favorite. I'm much more interested in like, emotional and psychological trauma and the the ways that people hurt each other than i am the you know creative ways that we kill each other <laughs> sure. but um yeah i don't know it's i i do think troll is a pretty transgressive novel in a pretty like everyday kind of way uh i i really had a lot of fun like playing around with the the insidious language of pornography and the way that that kind of can work its way into our everyday thought processes about sex uh, without us necessarily noticing just because you know it's so pervasive now um i wanted you know those those sequences where he's watching porn i really wanted to to describe it in a way that was like sexy but also gross <laughs> and kind of split the difference there and, and really you know make you think about what he's actually watching and how it's very different from just like a normal healthy sex life mm -hmm. yeah yeah you succeeded with with the porn <laughs> stuff make, making it both sexy and 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 really disgusting <laughs> um I I was thinking it's been years. It's been over a decade since I've read Catcher in the Rye. Um but I had recently just watched one of the the cozy booktubers my wife and I watched together on the weekends. Um recently she just read Catcher in the Rye and I was kind of thinking about um Holden Caulfield going off to New York and calling everybody phonies. Mm -hmm. Um while while reading the first section of this and then i was also thinking of american psycho as a sort of um antithesis to the narrator of troll because um patrick bateman like is kind of like an empty person who's trying to see if there's anything there mm -hmm. um whereas the narrator of troll is has substance but like refuses to to nurture any of it yeah um and so did you think about either of those books while writing it or were there other sort of american psycho definitely like i would i would count that as a a top two or three influence uh, i thought about it a lot and it it had a huge impact on me when i first read it in college uh you know I think it's a masterpiece, 
and at the same time it's it's hard to say that i liked it because it's really hard to read but um i think what really kind of got me fascinated with it over the years was a, a kind of a fan theory i think that um the murders are not real mm. that, that they're just his fantasies and that he's very much this kind of like impotent corporate cipher and and you know he uh he's just like a product of this this hyper masculine culture that he's in but he, he can't he's not actually doing any of this stuff it's it's just all in his head and whether that's true or not that it was part of the discussion was really interesting to me and made me think a lot about like the idea of the internet troll you know this guy who's thinks he's he's you know big and bad and and you know destroyer of worlds but is really just sitting at home alone typing on his computer and yeah he may do some real world harm but it's pretty limited right in the end. or at least i mean you know and the 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 definition of the word troll has changed a lot even in the time since i started writing this book yeah what it means today is very different from what it meant in 2016 when the book is set but um yeah i I thought about patrick bateman a lot um as for catcher in the rye i haven't read it since high school uh i will say the the guy in charge of the first press that picked up the book uh was quick to compare it to that Hmm. and i took that as a compliment but i i would have to read it again i just don't remember me, me too. I, my senior year high school AP English teacher was like constantly trying to get me to read Catcher in the Rye. And she's like, oh, you'd love this book. You'd <laughs> love this book. Oh, no. And so I read it like almost immediately after graduation. And I was like, and it's dawned on me more and more the farther away I get from myself as a 16, 17, 18 year old. Where it's like, oh, was I insufferable? um uh it's interesting because like i hated holden i thought he sucked um and i think i think i didn't pick up on some of the 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 hints at like abuse that he was um the subject of that sort of touched on at the beginning of the book i think i i really didn't pick up on that because again that book tuber that that my wife and i watched she was like i really feel bad for holden because you can tell that he's been twisted due to these experiences that have happened before the events of the book that are touched on um and you know one i haven't had any of those experiences so i have no excuse and um I didn't pick up on that. So it was one of those things where I read it and I was like, Oh no. Um, but don't you think, I mean, again, I haven't read it in a long time, but I kind of think if Holden read catcher on the rye, he would hate Holden. Right. <laughs> like, you know, I think a big driving, uh, force behind the troll character is that, you know, he hates everybody, but really he kind of hates himself. Yeah. And you get moments of that that you put in, like, I have to cover up how trash I really am. I have to disguise myself before I go on a date with this girl and and things like that. And, um, yeah, you know, I think there's, 
I think there's something to it. I it's such a short book. Um, I have a hard time rereading things because I have a list of of books that I own that I need to read that's too long anyway. Yeah. Um, but I should really, definitely read it. It it seems like it would be useful to to kind of go back over it now that I'm older and a little bit kinder to myself and other people to kind of gather what's going on there. Um, because yeah, I, I liked your, uh, your thought that you had there just recently that the, the definition of troll has really changed because the narrator is really kind of the end of an era of, of internet denizen where, like up until probably about 2014 the there was the the mantra of don't feed the trolls there are people who are on the internet and the way they use the internet is to try to get a rise out of you and they're easy to identify and they're easy to ignore don't take the bait just just ignore it um and i don't know what what happened um to make it so that the people who were trolling either became or replaced by actual racists right like um you know there's the people who do racism and then there's the people who are racists mm-hmm. um so i don't so i don't know like how these trolls went from the people who are participating in the project of white supremacy and misogyny um and and became or were replaced by people who are those things and would identify as those things at least in private um i don't know if it's like our fault like did we feed the trolls too much (laughs) is it like a a a gremlin sort of thing did we feed them after midnight and they realized that (laughs) that there was money to be made um or or what like maybe maybe youtube monetization did it right people realized that you know just making new atheist content was fun because it pissed off the christians but once you could start getting adsense from it that let's follow the money or yeah you know i think you know probably a certain amount of radicalization probably a certain amount of just like establishing a playbook that worse actors could follow um yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I, I have never been terribly online. Mm. So a lot of this is is completely made up as far as I'm concerned. Right. I didn't really start doing Twitter until like two, two and a half years ago, I, ironically. to You joined at the best time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I maybe can't speak to that as well as, as some people might could. But I... You know, I, I read about it tangentially, right? As as like a phenomenon, and it, it you know, it stuck in my mind as like why what makes people behave this way, right? I wonder if that's covered in that Kill All Normies book that has like haunted me like a specter. I don't know that. Um, it's it's published by Zero Books. Um. Angela Nagel. It's called Kill All Normies. Online culture wars from 4chan and Tumblr to Trump and the alt-right. So maybe it, it actually kind of answers those questions. It's one of those books, every once in a while, you know, you come across a book and you're like, that has good information in it, but I know it's going to 
make me so angry to read it. Yeah. Uh, like I still I still haven't read the new Jim Crow. Like I just know <laughs> that it's going to be <laughs> so infuriating to read um that I keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. Um uh because like I I know that I don't need to be convinced of anything, so I know that I'm just going to be giving context that's going to weigh on me. Uh, and so I'm going to use my privilege to say, "Nope, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until uh, I have nothing else to read or, or until I finally become brave enough to to really dig into it. Um, but for Did your you sake, you know, I'm glad I'm glad that you're not <laughs> super, haven't been super online because I, I think that outside is a really nice place to be. I do think that a lot of it does come back to the the addiction thing, like whether it's a drug or media or outrage or like the click of the tweet button like we're all just kind of doing the things that make our brain chemicals do what we like them to do and and so much of the world is streamlined to addict us to things now that you know i think you know if everybody takes a a good step back from their life and looks they're probably addicted to something yeah trolls definitely grew out of that yeah um the buddha would be very disappointed (laughs) um but yeah i think i think there's something too that uh, it kind of felt like an epiphany to me when i realized that like depression is addicting oh yeah um and i mean clearly you know it's hard it was hard for me to and and i think maybe still is to like blame uh the internet as an object mm-hmm. of 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 addiction right like because i really liked world of warcraft when it was big and popular and i'd like watch the documentaries about people who are addicted and my response as a kid who like didn't have his own computer and was just using the family computer to play wow was like i simply wouldn't play world of warcraft 14 hours a day and it's like <laughs> of course you don't have the opportunity to uh you have a brother who wants to play and you have parents who want you to do homework and and all that so like uh, <clears throat> there is you know every once in a while you have that day where it's like have i been on instagram for six hours why do i feel so bad um and i you know there's definitely like uh we we don't know like neurology very well as a general sort of baseline populace like we there's there's not like maybe there is and i haven't found it like good uh, verifiable information that's like when you tweet this happens in your brain and so like here's the safe number of tweets to do in a day or like i don't know like even a ratio like if you get six likes per tweet on average then you should tweet no more than four times a day and if you're a famous person one a day is the most or whatever but um yeah you know it's kind of the fear of every science fiction writer out there that the technology has outgrown us um or at least our our capacity to to handle it which is a bummer because you know i don't want old people to be right about that 
I wish <laughs> I wish I could handle it. Um, but obviously, you know, if you gave me a car that could drive 400 miles an hour, I'd crash it immediately. Oh, I I like the whole section in between the wedding scene um, and and the real date with L, where he um, completely flips in how he treats people um, to to an unhealthy degree, even. Um, and in such a way that it probably feels disingenuous to the people who know him on a daily basis. Um, but he is, he's like nice to like a couple people at the beginning of the work day and people immediately start treating him different. And he's like, wait a minute, could I have just done this the whole time? <laughs> um, which I find really fascinating um but it's still there's that element that I think we've we we touched on earlier of like he's only acting in a way because there's an expected outcome of the action mm-hmm. and there isn't like that knowledge of self of like these are the things I enjoy talking about Th- this is the amount of small talk I enjoy um that I think is missing from the sort of self-help culture uh, where okay so let's see if i can if i'm if i'm in uh, an l date situation where i'm just going to stick my foot in my mouth or if i actually have a good thought here so hold on uh the the idea is that like and i'm this is like my interpretation of what self-help and the like the dale carnegie how to make friends and influence people sort of pop psychology stuff works where it's like if you treat people like this they will respond to you like that um whereas there isn't that at least in the most popular stuff that seeps into the culture so that people who don't read those types of books can can interpret it there isn't that like know yourself so that you can be genuine with people and that's a good way to meet people because if you're genuine the people who are receptive to that are going to be people who are going to be easy to be around sort of thing um and i don't know if like the the narrator of troll knows who he is in a genuine sort of way to do that um, and so he does just this sort of like Nightcrawler esque, uh, like Jake Gyllenhaal Nightcrawler esque. Yeah, I, I knew what you meant. <laughs> um, sort of like, uh, I I took a I took a a six part YouTube video lesson on how to make friends, and this is how, what I'm gonna do. I don't know how much sense that made. No, I got you. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like the two chapters that you're talking about uh, for me are a lot more about him being sober for the first time in years. Mm. And there is that kind of, you know, really super high three or four day period right after you really get something out of your system where you you feel kind of almost superhuman. Like, like everything's coming up roses. You can't, you can't do anything wrong. Like he's he's happy to talk to people 
he, you know, the sky's a little bluer. He, he's better at writing. You know, his brain is, is functioning in ways that it hasn't because he keeps it dampened all the time. And then, you know, that inevitably wears off, you know, usually inside a week. And, um, and then you start to remember why you were smoking weed all the time. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's not really like this. Um, as far as his interactions with other people, you know, I think, I think they're just a product of that kind of, uh, it's almost like a manic depressive kind of dichotomy. Or like, you know, if you, if you've known someone with that condition and spoken to them in the manic stage, they can seem like a completely different person, you know, for a little while. And then, you know, the crash comes. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Thinking back on it, I see, I see where that's coming from. Um, and that makes sense. I, I think it's um for me a matter of just like having been away from unsobriety for so long that it's hard for me to like um consider that. But like yeah, that makes total sense that like that's a big part of it. And and thinking about it like yes, you, you definitely do like point to it kind of specifically too. And the, you know, the high of of kind of like infatuation too. Mm-hmm. Like uh, he's very much this kind of guy who will go from nothing to I've met the love of my life, you know, in a single night, which is absurd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's this great essay that I think about, I, I have thought about a lot in my own life over the years. I definitely thought about a lot while I was writing him. Uh, from Chuck Klosterman, the mm-hmm. Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. I think it's the very first one in the book. And he writes about how he's he's alone, and he's been alone for a long time, and he's kind of given up on finding real love because he, can, he only wants movie love. Mm-hmm. And he knows that it doesn't really exist, so he can't have it. <laughs> so he's just kind of screwed. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think in this, in this moment after the wedding, the troll feels like he's actually found the movie love that he didn't think that he'd kind of given up on. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of men, you know, can cop to having been there, Mm -hmm. especially in their younger, dumber years. I I certainly have. Uh, But, you know, you, you hopefully grow out of that he just he hasn't <laughs> right yeah and yeah that's interesting because i mean like even the setting of like meeting her right she kind of appears out of the crowd and then they go outside away from everything and they're sitting and it's quiet and they're sharing cigarettes and talking about like you know a deep interest um yeah it's you know it, there's it's the only chapter like it in the book for a reason it's it's supposed to feel kind of magical and, and ridiculous at yeah. the same time. <laughs> and it does and it makes what happens afterwards so much more painful for the reader because I'm like maybe this is it <laughs> May, maybe maybe this is enough um, you know maybe he will see her 
and understand that she's a full person and he's been wrong and he just needs to like slough off all those dumb reddit threads he's read (laughs) um and emerge a real person a man who lives in the world and obviously um that's not the case um and like you can see it coming i again i think there are things about about book length that can really work um well with regard to pacing um because like i'm at a certain point in the book and something really good is happening and there's so many pages left and i'm like this isn't gonna just turn into like him getting becoming a good person in the next 200 pages is it like it can't be (laughs) like i hope it is i hope that's what happens that would be really rewarding but i feel like the book would be called different and i feel like the 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 um the cover artwork would be different (laughs) and there's just you know as much as i want that to be the case the book's too well written for it to just cop out like that so it's probably going to be bad Okay. <laughs> you you resign yourself to it. Um I'm so sorry. <laughs> and um you know, it's great. Like I, I love I love that about books. It's kind of the same reason why I do like the gruesome stuff. Um and because like it's like being in a haunted house and you just know something unpleasant is going to come but it's fun to anticipate it and then it's a nice relief when you're done with it um so you keep walking through the haunted house until the zombie pops out you know until a 14 year old working for eight dollars an hour pops out and screams and and scares you and then you you continue um but it's so much more drawn out and and uh oh (laughs) like it's so good it's so good because it's so exhausting um I wanted to to real quick kind of bring up on on a more like sentence level uh the writing style here um because the book is long because a lot of things happen in it but I feel like it's long also because um it is and I say this really lovingly it's kind of overwritten um I had to look up so many words and there's so many references it's so dense um and I feel like that's because it's the the character telling the story and he's trying yeah. to like convince himself that he's smart or convince you, the reader, that he's so smart. So he's using all these, um, what's the term? Like $3 words. $3 words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> $10 words. <laughs> um, which is, which was cool from a, a, like a narrative thematic point of view. Like it, it really made it feel like it was the narrator gave it him his own voice um and it's also useful because i like vocabulary words and it sure. was was way better than a word a day calendar but um that's actually that that was a tool in in creating the character good word a day calendars and you know would would pull from those to to make him like that that kind of erudite way that he speaks <laughs> yeah and yeah you know he kind of he thinks like someone who's online all the time. Everything's a reference. Everything's, you know, uh, makes him think of something else. Uh, 
it is it is overwritten because he is his mind is overtaxed. So this is going to be at the beginning of uh, episode four, and he's just come home from work and is you know getting ready to relax and spend an evening alone smoking weed watching tv the way that we've been talking about uh during the interview so here we go you realized a long time ago that you like tv more than most people now this is not to say that you like tv more than most people like tv though that is also almost certainly true but rather that you like watching tv more than you like most people between your work computer and your home screens, you spend nearly two-thirds of every day in communion with the digital world. You are Cypher. You may have accepted the red pill once upon a time, but you've been looking for a way back to the blue ever since. You're not just aware of the Matrix. You believe in the Matrix. Evangelically. Sure, the little playlets you enact outside your various hard drives and streaming services change from time to time but your inner life is plotted to perfection. Fuck Zion. The Matrix is real, and Neo can blow you in bullet time. Your house winces as you step onto the Conestoga hardwood, shut the door, and quickly exfiltrate yourself from your clothes, loosing a cavernous dubstep belch in the direction of the great Irene Jacob, who already looking chilly in your original French-language poster for Christoph Kieslowski's Rouge, appears to shiver a bit as she flutters away from the wall. You consider her place one of honor, as nearly every other inch of vertical real estate is occupied by a chock-a-block Tetris grid of secondhand shelving. Squat dorm bookcases sit atop low console units, which buttress teetering particle board towers whose upper floors are stabilized by homemade, cut-to-fit two-by-four shelves, with knockoff IKEA cubes filling the odd nook and cranny, all in service of keeping somewhat organized your perpetually isotropically expanding media library. At last inventory, your shelving plexus housed around 4,000 DVDs, all of which you've watched, 3,000 LPs, about half of which you've listened to, and nearly 5,000 books, maybe a tenth of which you've read, maybe. Woody Allen to Robert Zemeckis, Cannonball Adderley to John Zorn, Douglas Adams to Howard Zinn, yours is a methodical kind of madness. Entertainment functions like any other drug, and for your woefully average American upbringing, that meant getting hooked young on Disney and Star Wars, your first fixes amidst a childhood spent rapidly suckling at the boob tube. Middle school brought the candy cigarettes of SNL, Monty Python, and Mystery Science Theater 3000, and your first real cigarette by way of a secrecy-sworn sleepover screening of Porky's before you dove headlong into a morbidly curious teenagerhood of shotgunning Natty Lights with Stallone and Schwarzenegger and deadening your senses with Ditchweed and Jay and Silent Bob. By college, you'd graduated to the hard stuff, downing stiff double shots of The Shield and The Sopranos, taking epic bong rips of Greenaway, snorting Kubrick by the Kilo and shooting Bergman directly into your eyeballs. You've always been this way. All highs point somewhere higher, and all depths lead somewhere lower. The promise of ecstasy and depravity in equal measure forever just around the next bin. The next album, the next film, the next hit. In essence, your whole life is a wiki hole. 
If you'd ever had the balls to try smack or meth, you'd surely be long dead by now. The more you know. The entire shoddy apparatus shudders under your heavy footsteps as you lovingly run, run your hand along all three walls of stringently abacadarian spines before heading to the couch and flipping on the fourth. With ESPN blathering in the background, you turn your attentions to Blaise Pascal, the diminutive glass pipe you emptied this morning. The art of packing a bowl is subtle and underappreciated. Though not as sexy as the joint or its gluttonous cousin, the blunt, the bowl prizes economy above all. Finely attuned to your own tolerances, you craft every hit with mathematic precision and conveyor belt uniformity twisting three pea-sized nugs between the tar-stained teeth of your grinder with the dispassionate brutality of an Iron Maiden. Grinding your weed provides for a more even, controlled burn and allows you to dole out prescription hits with Hippocratic discretion. You've even adopted the practice of dividing each new sack into a color-coded two-week pill planner. The brass screen is over a week old. You'll need to change it soon. But for today, the smoke still flows freely between its ash-crusted apertures and upward into your skull. You are a honey-baked ham. While the first hit of the day is always the best, the first hit of the evening is never far behind. Embracing you with the tenderness of a doting, naked-beneath-her-apron housewife, it stills your fidgety digits and demands your lips' attentions again and again until you both collapse, sated and spent, and sink into the magic hour. Where the first hit of the day is your suit of armor, the first hit of the evening is your silk pajamas. Where the first hit of the day is your espresso shot, the first hit of the evening is your glass of oak-aged red. Regardless of whatever came before it, in a single moment, it makes absolutely everything okay again. Suddenly, your dim hovel is rendered a symphony of cleanly wonder, as if transformed by a wave of the Fantasia sorcerer's wand. What seemed mere hours ago like the wholesale contents of a Waffle House kitchen that curating their way out of your rancid refrigerator is now a delectable smorgasbord of dinner options to rival the feasts of Heliogabalus. What often feels like a desultory Kansas monochrome life is plunged into Aussie and Technicolor with nothing ahead but miles of yellow brick road and only the occasionalist of commercial interruptions. And so you begin your nightly journey up the dial and into the ether. Roger Federer smacks an ace across some poor snap's schnoz. A well-coiffed African-American woman warns of a sexual predator. Ross Chandler and Phoebe sip syndicated coffee. A couple examine a brownstone with an overzealous realtor. DeVry University offers you a sad fresh start. An NCIS CSI SVU agent makes an off-color pun on the word stiff. A Honda vehicle is declared both luxurious and affordable. An edited-for-TV Samuel L. Jackson demands his mutual fund in money. A model nearly jiggles out of her demi-cup as she gorges on a Western bacon cheeseburger. You pause momentarily. A nervous man misses a Jeopardy question. Smooth jazz plays over a weather map. And so on. You circle back to the Friends rerun as you've been working your way haphazardly through the series for something like the tenth time and have come to find the vocal rhythms and telegraphed punchlines as soothing as steady rain or ocean waves. You know them all by heart, but still chuckle at every suave, how you doing, or exasperated, I know. And while you tell yourself you're doing research for a long gestating polemic, in your heart, you still want to love the friends more than you want to hate them. Theirs is a near perfect fantasy, 
the kind that never seems too far-fetched until you really start to think about it. No matter how cynical you become, they will always be there for you. You finish off your bowl with a coffle of quick, sequential puffs and hold them in until you cough up thick, frayed ropes of hemp. Finally tranquilized, you shamble to the bathroom to pop out a few compact rock tumbler poops and stroll through the kitchen to retrieve a mucosal styrofoam container of Mongolian beef and a family-sized bag of Cheetos. As you return to the couch, your gently drifting mind notes a striking resemblance between Chester and the outlaw tobacco mascot Joe Camel, and you wonder if he'll someday beat the same societally mandated excommunicatory fate. They're both essentially cartoon drug dealers, after all luring kids into their deviant vans with purred promises of tinted glass cool. Your couch sits only a few feet from your TV, close enough to letterbox your peripheral vision and dive in like Captain N. Tonight, however, the pot-addled senses have their own ideas, and as you overtake your pile of cold Chinese food, your interest in the friends is waning fast, their beat-perfect badinage dissolving into white noise with a slight Long Island accent. Pausing to fellate Cheeto dust off your fingers, you catch a glimpse of your own bowed reflection in the dead gray screen of your wood console Magnavox, atop which your working unit sits. A remnant of your childhood, the first box you ever watched. And are struck by a familiar, paranoid notion you've held since long before you were a permatoasted hothead. That people behave differently when you're not around. You've always imagined yourself to be a kind of social antimatter, that any conversation you wander into is immediately dampened or quelled until you excuse yourself again. You suspect, no, don't sugarcoat it, you believe that real people who really care about each other in real life are every bit as codependently conjoined as the Gellers, Greens, Bings, Buffets, and Trivianis group hugging on screen. And they sit around hip coffee shops and impossibly unaffordable apartments discussing their personal lives ad over-caffeinated nauseam until all issues are resolved and all emotional ties affirmed. You're positive that these oversharing think tank conversations take place, that there are groups of people who spend all their time effectively helping one another regress toward the societally acceptable mean, and you're just as positive that you've simply never been invited. As the friends give way to a string of noisy commercials, you start flipping channels again, climbing into the three-digit jungle canopy of niche cable. You pass snippets of exotic flora and fauna, decade-old queer-eye ep queer episodes, Canadian curling semifinals, senators debating in real time whether to declare August 12th National Take Your Gun to Work Day. Beyond that is a wasteland of condescendingly specified radio channels, jazz moods, urban beats, Latin fire, a note or two from each blipping and bleeding into the next like some maniacally micro-sampled Matthew Herbert track until finally, after minutes of rhythmic clicking, you're deposited into a calm blue screen ocean of premium movie and sports channels to which you do not currently subscribe. You'll see nothing but lapis for the next 400 stops, but you click on, allowing silent creeping dread to take hold. For people who smoke marijuana in responsible measure, Paranoia is something of a winky cliche. They talk about how it makes them wonder if no one else in the room likes them, or think every exterior noise is the cops coming to batter their door down. They joke about it, like the munchies, or tie-dye, or reggae. But they've likely never approached the kind of ingrained, paranoiac sensibility 
prolonged THC consumption can forge in an otherwise reasonable mind. As an all-day, everyday adherence to the greenfold path, you do not wonder if other people like you or not. You take as a given that they don't. You revel in the knowledge that you're smarter than literally everyone you encounter in your day-to-day -day life, but also acknowledge that bumptious thoughts half-empty obverse, that your day-to-day -day life is literally filled with idiots. Your coworkers take pride in their shallow work, forwarding their every unthink piece to their families and friends for fear no one else will read it before it's cast to the winds of disposable content. They see themselves as writers by simple virtue of the fact that they write words, and those words are published by persons other than themselves. This infinitesimal remove and light dusting of validation are enough for them to feel their place in the zeitgeist is secure. An outside observer might see you as doing much the same, but you rarely allow yourself to utter the words, I'm a writer in mixed company, instead answering questions about your job with self-deprecating jokes about plagiarism and prostitution. Sure, you've written plenty, short stories, one-act plays, half of two novels, even some poetry, and mailed it off everywhere from the Iowa Writers Workshop to Cracked Magazine. But you don't believe you've earned the right to call yourself a writer, not yet. Rejection takes a toll. You'd never in your life felt like you needed someone to tell you you were talented until 60 or so publications of varying quality bluntly suggested that maybe you weren't. It's been years since you wrote a word that mattered to you. Why bother? We're talking about a reading populace that's collectively decided YA is a genre rather than, age, rather than an age-specific comprehension level, and that only even tried to crack a Faulkner after Oprah recommended it. What reward even awaits true literary talent today? Total audience numbers that likely wouldn't get within shouting distance of your top 10 sluttiest rap videos parental control software doesn't block article. 46,000 views and counting. That's the world you write for now. It's vindicating, and on some base, simian level, even exciting, to generate that kind of traffic, to have your finger on the throbbing pulse, however briefly, but it doesn't make you a writer. Not in your book. Thank you.